All right, hello and welcome to Encounter Church. We're so glad that you could be here with us this morning. My name is Daniel. I serve on the speaking team here at Encounter. And as always, it is a blessing and a privilege and an honor to be able to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Hey, we're wrapping up a series here at Encounter Church that we've been in for over a month. We're calling it God Is Not, where we we looked at how God is not a warm fuzzy, how God is not on demand, how God is not safe, how these gods are a figment of our imagination and how they don't exist in real life and we started to see what God truly is and his message and his purpose for our lives and what, what he wants us to do for the coming kingdom. It's been a great series. I've enjoyed it a lot. And today we're going to talk and wrap it up by talking about how God is not done. He's not done in your life. Whatever, whatever season of your life, uh, whatever, whatever thing that you feel like you might be stuck in, God is not done with that yet, right? Your story doesn't end there. There is a purpose to the pain. There is a purpose to the grace. God is not done. And to do that, I want to start off by asking a simple question. I want to start off by asking everybody, have you ever felt like you've been stuck before? Uh, I, I understand that this is a pretty general question, so I'll give an example from my life. I felt like I've been stuck in papers, in lectures, in, in tests my entire life, right? Ever since I was five, ever since I started school, that's been a part of my life. So 2018, I mean 2019, is shaping out to be a great year for me because it's the year where I finally graduated seminary. It's the year that I finally graduated uh, pastor training school. Right, thank you. One person's happy for me. <laughs> uh, um, and, it, and it's exciting because I felt like so stuck in this life of having to like write these papers and listen to the lectures and study for tests. And now I'm like liberated from that. I don't have to deal with that ever again until I realize that I've been living like my life in chunks of like three to four years, three years in middle school, four years in high school, four years in college, four years in seminary. And now I'm at like the gates of like the next 40 years of my life, right? It's like 40 years my career happens and then I die, right? This is kind of a big deal. The next 40 years of my life and now I feel like I'm in a whole new level of stuck. Now I have this anxiety like, dude, you majored in philosophy. You could be a professor, you could be a lawyer, you could be a pastor, or you could work at McDonald's, right? That's the running joke with philosophers. Like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do if 10 years down the road, you're like, I want to become something else. I don't want to be a pastor. Now you're stuck in this. And it's not like the tests and the papers go away. I have to write a sermon every single week, man. This is hard. It's like an eight-page paper every single week. And then you're put on stage and you're put to the test. Like, I feel so stuck in this lifestyle. Have you ever, have you ever been there before? Maybe you're in the same shoes as I am. Maybe you are about to graduate or you graduated soon or, or you're about to graduate soon and now you're like, I don't even know if I really want to do this. I feel stuck in this career path. I feel stuck in this season of my life. Maybe, maybe you're a new parent, right? And you're holding your three-year-old five minutes before you go out to church and he or she decides that breakfast is better on your shirt than it does staying in his or her stomach. And now you're holding vomit, McVomit face thinking, I'm stuck for the next 15 years of my life with this baby. Maybe you're stuck in finances. Maybe you're stuck in debt. Maybe you're stuck in a relationship that you really shouldn't be in. Maybe you're stuck in sin. Maybe you're stuck in depression or anxiety. Friends, whatever it is, God is telling us this morning that whatever season we're in, whether it's a season of grace, whether it's a season of pain, there is a purpose to that grace. There is a purpose to that pain. 
that our story doesn't end here. God is not done with us yet. So if you will, please turn with me. John chapter 8, we're going to start at verse 2. There are Bibles underneath the seat. Uh, The words will also be on the screen behind me, but we're going to start at John chapter 8, verse 2. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. See, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he, had to, he, he uh, started getting a lot of followers. Uh, he had done his miracles. He'd done the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. Right? He's, he's getting this uh, following. People are seeing the witness, uh, witnessing the miracles that he's doing. And some of the teachings that he's teaching is something that they've never heard before. And he's making these grandiose claims that he is the son of God, and that there's a new kingdom coming, an upside-down kingdom where there won't be poor people, where there won't be hungry people, where people won't die. And if you believe in him, the water you drink will never, if you, you will never thirst again from the water that you drink, right? You'll never hunger again from the bread that he offers you. Right? It's like this message of grace and truth, and people are flocking to him, all the way from the poor, marginalized, disenfranchised people in, his na- uh, in, in that city, all the way to like, the teachers of the laws and the Pharisees. And we see, we see that even the God of the universe can come to earth, and he could do everything right, and he could say everything that is truthful, and he could be the nicest, most compassionate, caring people, and he can't still avoid the haters. People feel threatened by him. People want to tear him down. People want him to die. And that's what we see in verse 3 where it says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. Now what do you say? If you, if you like carefully read that passage, there's like a number of things that's just really, really weird about it, Right? The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Why do they have a woman caught in adultery, right? Even if she sinned, it's like if like, like the pastors of Grand Rapids formed some sort of cohort and went out and like started arresting people like in like active vigilance, right? It's just odd. It's just weird, right? What's more weird is that they brought her to Jesus. Like why would they bring her to Jesus, right? Jesus is a rabbi. Jesus is a teacher, it's like if Grand Rapids police like arrested a suspect and then they brought that person to encounter church. It was all like, hey, Dirk, what should, we, what should we do with this guy? And Dirk's like, I don't know, dude, I'm the pastor. Like, why, why don't you take him downtown? Why don't you take him to the courthouse, right? That's the second thing that's weird. Another thing that's weird is they only brought the women, right? Like, if she was caught in the act of adultery, it takes two to tango, right? At least two to tango. So, like, where is the partner? Like, where is the other, other people that were involved in all of this, right? That's weird. They only brought one person. And lastly, where's the evidence? Now, back in, back in those days, the level of uh, sin that was considered adultery was, like, on par with, like, murder, right? Like, back then, and even to a certain extent today, people kind of freak out about, like, sexual immorality, sin kind of stuff. So, like, if you were caught in adultery, the punishment was death. Like, that's a pretty hard punishment, right? So like they needed evidence. They were like, you needed a witness and you didn't even need a single witness. You needed like witnesses and like they needed to be caught in the act. You can't just have a picture, a snapshot of a DM, right? Like you needed hard, concrete evidence that this actually happened, yet we see none of that. This all, friends, leads up to the fact that there's something shady going on. There's something a little suspect going on and that's exactly what we see in the next verse. It says that they were using this question as a trap 
in order to have a basis for accusing him. See, they were trying to push Jesus into a place where he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. Uh, has anybody heard of the Kobayashi Maru? I'm about to drop the nerdiest thing that I've ever probably said on stage on you guys, okay? Kobayashi Maru is this concept from Star Trek, okay? It's for, <laughs> it's, uh, it's for like people that are like wanting to be captains of starships. And they're, they're put through this simulation. It's called the Kobayashi Maru. Basically, they have to choose uh, between going out and saving this uh, broken down starship right, in, like, enemy territory. They have to go out and try to rescue them or they just, like, like abandon them and go on their way, right? And basically what is, what is setting up is a no-win situation. It's a lose-lose situation. So if they try to go and rescue the ship, then the enemy ambushes them. And if they just go on their way, then obviously their friends die. So lose-lose situation to see how uh, the commander is going to react, right? We've all been in a Kobayashi Maru situation before, right? You go on a date, guy's kind of cute, at the end of the day, he leans in for a kiss, but he's not that cute, right? You want to go on a second date, but you don't really want to kiss them. Now you're in a no-win situation, right? It's a no-win scenario, right? You go to play golf, it's early in the morning, you tee up, right? You either have the option to shank it into the woods or slice it into the river. It's a no-win situation. It's a Kobayashi Maru, right? We see Jesus stuck in a no-win situation. On one hand, if he says, stone the women, completely goes against everything that he's been teaching thus far about grace, compassion, truth, and mercy. It completely goes against all of that. And plus, he has no authority to do that. They were under Roman occupation, so if he did that, if he said that, then the Roman guards would come and arrest him for breaking the law, right? On the other hand, if he says, no, 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 we can't stone the woman, like there needs to be grace, truth, compassion, then, then he's obeying God's law, right? And that's exactly what the Pharisees would want. They'd be like, wait, you're the son of God? You're not gonna obey God's law? This doesn't make any sense. Like, you, you don't have any authority here anymore. He loses all credibility, right? It's a no-win situation. But I think there's a third way, a third option. One that's not really talked about, and maybe this is just like, this is like from my own thoughts, so don't even put that much thought into it. But I think there's a third way that Jesus could have chose, and I wouldn't have blamed him. And there's a third way that we often choose, right? And it's to simply walk away from the situation. Like, God, you're the God of the universe. Jesus, you're the God of the universe. You know this is a no-win situation. You know you're being set up. If the deck is stacked, you always have the option to walk away. Just simply avoid the problem, right? But that still leaves Jesus with a problem that, that if he didn't intervene there and if he didn't step up and do something, that that woman would have died, and that's completely against what Christ wanted here on earth. He spent all of his time healing people and reminding people that he wasn't done with them yet. See, I think there's an important lesson in there for us where we often think that ignoring the problem is solving the problem, right? But that's not the case. That's not what Jesus is saying. Like, have you ever, like, used a credit card before? Like, have you ever, like, spent, like, $1,000 and they want to bill you for twenty-five? And you're like, that's amazing. That's like the greatest deal on earth, right? Until like math happens. And now like a year later, you owe way more money than you ever thought possible. Avoiding the problem, ignoring the problem is not solving the problem. It just creates space for that problem to fester and grow into something so much more destructive. That weird bump on your body, ah, it must be nothing, right? I'm not going to go get that checked out. Until that festers and grows into something that is so much of a bigger problem. That toxic relationship that you're in right? Everybody all around you, all your friends are saying, that is unhealthy for you. That's an unhealthy relationship. That's an abusive relationship. Yet, if you avoid the problem and you simply settle, 
you create the space for it to fester, to grow into something that is so much more devastating, right? Avoiding the problem is not solving the problem. Avoiding the problem creates space for that evil, for that destruction to grow. Jesus recognized this. That's why in the next verse, he bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. He doesn't avoid the problem. No one really knows what Jesus wrote. Uh, Some people speculate that he wrote what he was going to say next or that he wrote something in Deuteronomic Nob, but no one really knows what Jesus wrote. We just know that in verse 7, that when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he asked them or said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Have you guys ever been in an argument before where like two hours after the argument, you're like, oh, I really wish I came up with that then. Like, man, if just in the heat of the argument, I had just come up with that, that would have been the perfect clapback. Yeah, Jesus never had that problem. With like a single sentence, he turns the entire conversation with the single sentence, the tables are turned, right? If and let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. See, Jesus had this way of turning this, this malicious attempt. Jesus had this way of taking the situation where this woman could have quite literally potentially died. And he turns it not only into a teachable moment, he turns it into a moment of truth, of grace, of hope, and mercy, and, 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 and space for reflection for the people that came to shame the woman. See, it's less about shaming the woman and Jesus saying, like, have you checked yourself? Have you checked your own heart? He's calling them out on that, right? There's grace in that. And I think it's fair to ask, like, that's cool, Jesus, like, there's grace in that, but, like, what about the truth? What about justice? Like, last week we talked about how, like, God destroyed two entire cities in the name of destroying the wicked and the evil, right? Like, this woman's just going to go scot-free? Like, she sinned, and, like, and, and now it's like there's no punishment? Like, Jesus, I thought we were supposed to love the sinner and hate the sin, right? And, like, I imagine, like, you know, that's, like, a common saying in churches, love the sinner, hate the sin. Like, we go to Jesus with that. And I imagine, like, Jesus in, like, a very Jesus-y, nice way kind of goes, like, yeah, like, you kind of got that right. Like, I I love the part about love the sinner. Like, that's why I came. That's why I died. That's why I rose again. It's one of the greatest commandments Jesus ever gave is to love God and love our neighbors. He loves that. Love the sinner. That's great. But Jesus is saying it's less about loving the sin. It's less about loving their sin. And it's, more, it's less about hating their sin. It's more about hating your own sin. Right? It's not love the sinner, hate the sin. It's love the sinner, hate your own sin. Look in your own heart. Take the speck out of your own eye before you call out the speck. Take the plank out of your own eye before you call out the speck in your neighbor's eye. Right? Love the sinner hate to sin. That's the message that Jesus had, and the people didn't like it. It says, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now, and leave your life of sin. I, I love how Jesus cares more about what's going to happen next 
than what the things that she did wrong in the past, right? The two commands that Jesus leaves her with is go now, in a sense saying, I'm not done with you yet. Your story doesn't end here, right? I have a purpose for you in your pain or in your grace. There's a purpose in that. Go now, I'm not done. And then leave your life of sin. The thing that got you stuck in this situation, put that behind. Take up my mission. Drink from my cup and I will give you peace. I think that is so beautiful. See, Jesus didn't ask, did you do it? Was it really you? Why did you do it? Instead, he focuses on what's going to happen next. I think this is such a common theme throughout all of Christ's ministry. When he says things like, go now and live your life of sin. It begs us to wonder what happened next in this woman's life. We wonder if she went and actually did leave her life of sin. Like if she did pick up the cross and follow him, right? The story just kind of ends there like so many other stories in the Bible. We don't get a clear resolution of what happened in this woman's life. But what do you think happened? Like when you look at the scope of what God is doing in the history of the universe, what do you think happened to this woman's life? Like when you look at the God of the Old Testament, when like you, you hear stories like Elijah, where he's running away from Queen Jezebel, and he crawls underneath a bush, and he's so tired, he's so hungry, he's so defeated, that this man who has empirical evidence that God exists decided to crawl under a bush and demand that he, be, he, just, he just die. And God shows up, and God says, look, I'm not done with you yet, man. Your story doesn't end here. This is simply a pause. This isn't the finish line. You have to keep fighting the good fight. There are people that defend, depend on you. There are people that you need to save. So get up and get going. I'm not done with you yet. When we look at stories like Jonah, now it might be a little bit different from Elijah, but God grabs Jonah, kicking and screaming as he's on a boat headed the opposite direction. And he's like, ah, come here, buddy. I'm not done with you yet. Your story doesn't end in the belly of a fish. Your story doesn't end with you at the bottom of an ocean. Your story ends with you saving an entire nation. There's purpose in your pain. There's purpose in the grace that I'm providing you. Your story doesn't end here. I'm not done with you yet. And Jesus takes that, takes that grace and hope from the Old Testament and brings it into the New Testament. He goes to the leper. He goes to the sick. He goes to the blind and the crippled. And the entirety of his ministry and the mission is, I'm not done with you yet. Your story doesn't end with you being blind. Your story doesn't end with you being crippled. Your story doesn't end with you being a leper and being a social outcast. Let me heal you. I am so excited for what's going to happen next. God cares less about our past mistakes. He is so excited about our future potential. He went to the sick but he also went to the sick, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, socially outcast and marginalized people. And he too healed them one by one and said, go out. Your story doesn't end here. I'm not done with you yet. And they went out and did amazing things. Friends, what do you, what do you think that says? If that's the God then, and that's what Jesus did then, and we're supposed to take this word that is the word of God and apply it to our lives, what is that telling us? That whatever season that we're in now, right? Whatever season where we feel stuck, whatever season where we feel like we're in a place of pain, I have to imagine that God is telling us, 
I'm not done with you yet. There's a purpose to that pain. There's a purpose to that grace. Your story doesn't end here. So keep fighting the good fight. One day you'll finish the race. But until then, I'm not done with you yet. See, I think that's such a beautiful image. It's the it's easy image to see in what God did in the Bible and what God is doing in the world today. And I think it's so awesome when we can see examples of how God actually shows up and does this in an amazing way in somebody's life. Has anybody, like, anybody on Reddit? Do you guys like, sweet, yeah, okay, two people. Um, I, I, I like Reddit. Uh, I spend a lot of time on there. Um, a couple of weeks ago, it might have been a couple of months now, there was, um, there was a post on a subreddit called Roast Me. Um, now, if you know what that subreddit is, you realize that there are some of the most vicious people on the internet that are gathered there. The concept of the subreddit is you hold up a piece of paper and it says, like, roast me on it. And that's giving, like, the collective internet uh, permission to roast you, right? And to just say, like, the meanest things about you, mostly on, like, how you look in that picture. There was a post that came on a couple of months ago of a man. I brought a picture, um, and the, the title, it simply said, 17-year-old um, Russian with crippling depression. Give me a reason to end it all. Now, you can kind of tell by the look on his face that in that, like, half-jokingly edgy, like, threat, that there is a chance that he was actually looking for validation to carry on with what he had intended to do. See, I believe that this, this man, this young man, I don't even know his name, was stuck, was really stuck in a dark place. He was really stuck in a place of hopelessness. And the only way out seemed like to take himself out. So before I clicked into the comments, I was so nervous and I was so scared about what people were gonna say to him. Like, this, this place is just full of people that tear people down, right? I was so scared of what was gonna happen when the normal thing happens in that place until I got to the comments section. And not only did I witness a, a slight miracle, I honestly believe I witnessed an act of God. One person writes, you look like the guy that I know that went and got help and got better. Another person writes, no, I and most others refuse. You may seem on the surface as if you're just being edgy, but there is no life in those eyes. I can only hope that you're joking, and if not, that you get better. Don't delete this post. Know who you have to talk to in a time of need. This whole comment section is full of people that have been down that road, and I'm sure they're willing to talk to you if need be. Get well, my friend, because depression isn't a joke. It is not an illness that should be overlooked. Another person chimes in with, buddy, you stumbled into a pit of some of the most vicious vipers on the internet and we're all rooting for you. Virtual hug, my brother. And the one that got me, friends, is when, when someone writes, you're the same age as my son who committed suicide three months ago. Please don't hurt yourself. I know there are people in your life who would be devastated. My son didn't know how many people loved him and how much we hurt right now that he's gone. Please stay alive. Please get help. Please don't let your story end here. 
It's so amazing how God shows up in situations like this and uses like thousands and thousands of random people on the internet to completely touch this kid's life and to turn him around and set him on a new path. I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but I don't even think that's the point. That through this experience of grace and love, that hopefully one day it'll be, it'll be a catalyst for him to actually know the love of God and to know the love of Christ that is so much more powerful than what random people on the internet can ever offer. He posted an update three days later. Uh, he looks a lot happier in this picture. And he wrote, Thank you for all the support. Seeing complete strangers care about my situation really warmed my heart. And he invited us this time that now he's doing so much better that we should actually roast him. And roast him, we did. Somebody wrote, sometimes the line between life and suicide is as thin as your hair. Stay strong, dude. <laughs> Another person writes, I had that same haircut once. I was about one second old. <laughs> Friends, as we wrap up our time together, as we wrap up this series together, I just pray and hope that you will be reminded to fight the good fight, to continue to fight the good fight, whether it's in a season of peace or whether it's in a season of pain, that there is a purpose to that grace. There's a purpose to that pain. Continue to fight the good fight. One day, the race will be finished. And until then, God is not done you yet. Will you rise and pray with me? Father God, sometimes we just feel like we're in a season of life where we're stuck and we just simply don't know what's next. But we know that in your presence and in your love that you're always with us and that the message you have is that you're not done in our lives today. You're not done with our story. So with that peace and comfort, we go forward knowing that you will continue to use us to do great and amazing things in your kingdom and for your glory. I pray today that as we, as we come to know you more and as we come to love you more, that you will bring us the reassurance and the hope that you are not done with us yet. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.